Happy Valentine's Day, my Nourish and Free listeners. What better topic to cover today than the autoimmune paleo diet? I mean, obviously that's what's on everybody's mind today. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I have had a lot of people suggest that I do this as a dietitian review. So today's the day I gotta give people what they want, right? So <laughs> before we dive in, be sure you follow or subscribe to this show so that you never miss an episode. And if you enjoy it, leave me a rating if you love it leave me a review. Not only will that help me sleep better at night, but it also shows the powers that be that this is a show people are enjoying. So they will recommend it to more people. And if you're not following me on Instagram, come find me over there. My handle is at Yates Nutrition. And I like to have some fun over there. Today, you're going to hear me refer to this diet as the AIP, um, the autoimmune protocol or the autoimmune paleo diet. They're all the same things. So just know AIP autoimmune protocol or autoimmune paleo could go either way. Um, so I'm excited to talk about this. This is a diet that is used as a dietary intervention for those who are struggling with autoimmune conditions. As a quick refresher, autoimmune conditions can be something like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, psoriasis, inflammatory bowel disease, um, that includes like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, there's a lot. <laughs> so, um, allegedly this diet, this approach is supposed to help reduce the symptoms of the autoimmune disease by reducing inflammation that might be caused by dietary intake. So you're in for a treat today because not only are we going to be talking about the AIP, we're also going to be talking about food and inflammation in general, which is such a buzzword. It is such a hot topic right now. And the wellness industry. And so you're going to get a really good understanding of what foods are actually inflammatory and which ones aren't. And then how does that relate to autoimmune diseases? Now, I want to start off by saying autoimmune diseases, the field of rheumatology is complicated. And so if you suspect you have an autoimmune disease, definitely go see a rheumatologist. And if you want help with the nutrition side of things, I recommend seeing a dietitian who works with autoimmune diseases on the regular. But <laughs> before you go and do that, listen to this episode first, because I'm going to have some things that I want you to be weary of when you go to look for a nutritionist to help you with your symptoms, be sure that they are actually, that they actually know what they're talking about. And so <laughs> this podcast will give you a really good baseline understanding of dietary interventions to help with your autoimmune systems. But please go see a specialist um, and talk about your specific needs and your specific condition rather than just taking this and, and trying to use it as medical advice. So, all right, let's dive in to this AIP diet review. And I'm sorry, my chair is squeaky. You might hear that in the background. That's probably not the best chair for podcasting, but here we are. <laughs> so allegedly, this diet is supposed to help with reducing the symptoms of autoimmune diseases by reducing inflammation. And so <laughs> autoimmune diseases and inflammation go hand in hand. They're, they're buddies. I mean, you can't really have an autoimmune disease without inflammation. Right. And so it's, it makes sense. Like it, it tracks, right. That somebody would want to try and help their symptoms and reduce inflammation through their diet. And so of course, a part of that is we're going to look into well, which foods might be causing inflammation then? Because we obviously want to avoid those in order to help manage the autoimmune um, symptoms that we might have. So insert the AIP. That's kind of the whole idea of this is 
we're going to have some dietary interventions here to reduce inflammation and therefore help our autoimmune condition. But is this really helpful? Is this a helpful diet for those with autoimmune conditions? Or is it just another fad that is really restrictive and isn't really helping anybody? Well, let's dig in a little bit more and find out. So the AIP is an elimination diet. So if you've never heard of an elimination diet or you don't know what it is, it's different than just going on a diet for the rest of your life. This is, we're going to eliminate certain foods out of the diet, do like a, a detox of them, right? Get them completely out of our system. This is usually for about one to two weeks. And then we're going to slowly reintroduce foods, but only one at a time or one ingredient at a time, depending on what it is. And we're going to look for symptoms, So we're really trying to find which foods are the actual suspects of our issues. And so an elimination diet is you eliminate foods in the beginning, but there's also the reintroduction phase. So that is really important to understand. This isn't just a diet where you eliminate everything for the rest of your life and never have it again. You are supposed to reintroduce all of those foods very meticulously and methodically. So in order to do this right, we do need to be tracking our symptoms, which foods we've introduced, how long it's been. It's kind of a process, and that's why you really should do this with a registered dietitian if you're going to do an elimination diet of any kind. This is also the gold standard for finding any sensitivities to food you may have. Now, a quick little side note, it is the gold standard. Food sensitivity tests are not. Food sensitivity tests are actually a total scam, just so you know. Allergy tests are not a scam. Those are measuring immunoglobulin E or IgE, which is a response to an allergen. Food sensitivity tests, on the other hand, those are measuring IgG. And IgG can be in your bloodstream just because you ate a food. It has nothing to do with whether it's causing inflammation or not. So Food sensitivity test, total scam. There's a reason that insurance doesn't cover them is because insurance knows there's no good research behind them. So don't waste your money. Just do an elimination diet in- instead if you have concerns that you might be sensitive to a food or allergic to a food. But once again, I'll say this again, <laughs> please do it with a professional. <laughs> what we're looking for is symptoms in that reintroduction phase. And those symptoms are basically pointing us to, yeah, there's probably some inflammation going on. If we have symptoms like headache or bloating or nausea, or our stomach is really upset or in pain or our joints are aching, or we get a skin rash, right? Like these are all things that can be pointing to a sensitivity or food allergy. Okay. So we've covered what an elimination diet is, right? It is to eliminate certain foods, reintroduce them, look for symptoms that can be showing that these are not foods our body tolerates well. And if our body's not tolerating it, there's likely some inflammation associated with that as well. A quick review on what inflammation is, I'm sure you know, but it really is just the body's response of saying something is wrong. So if there's a food causing inflammation, then obviously that food is just not being well tolerated in the body. The body is saying, hey, there's something about this that just doesn't doesn't vibe with me, doesn't work for me. (laughs) Okay. So it's great if we can identify what foods are causing an inflammatory response. If 
any. Now, a lot of times we assume foods are causing an inflammatory response just because that's what we've heard like in the news or on Instagram or something, but it's not. And so then we have this unnecessary stress going into a food and this like heightened sense of, oh, I shouldn't be having this. And that can actually be causing inflammation in and of itself if you're just stressed out about it, right? Because stress causes inflammation. So it is something that you need to be like weary of that you're not just eliminating stuff because somebody on Instagram told you to. It actually should be causing you physical symptoms. So that's why the elimination diet is really a gold standard here because it's based on super intense studying of your own body, not just what somebody else says is the best thing for you. So let's go into speaking of what somebody else says is the best thing for you. Let's go into the AIP diet. So there are essentially two lists here and I will link in the show notes, a link to my blog. I'm going to have a blog post on this, a written article so that you can see the lists written out. Um, but I'll just like quickly run through the foods that are excluded, meaning they they get eliminated in the beginning, and then the foods that you can still eat during the elimination phase. So let's start with foods that apparently, according to the AIP diet, typically cause inflammation. So it makes sense to eliminate them in the beginning and then reintroduce them to see if there is in fact any symptoms associated with those foods. So the first one is just all grains, (laughs) all grains, literally any grain. And then next one, all dairy, any dairy product, also eggs, nuts and seeds, legumes and beads, nightshade vegetables. If you don't know what those are, those are like tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, and peppers, any sugars, including the alternative sugars like stevia and xylitol, aspartame, um, butter or ghee, oils other than coconut oil, olive oil, or avocado. Those are chill. You can still have those. Herbs derived, derived from seeds, food additives, or processed foods, chocolate, And then, of course, obviously alcohol. The foods that you can still eat during the elimination phase is any meat and fish, preferably grass-fed meat, apparently. Um, Vegetables, as long as they're not the nightshade vegetables. Sweet potatoes, fruit, but only in small quantities. Coconut milk, avocado, olive, and coconut oil. We saw that from the first list. Dairy-free fermented foods like kombucha, sauerkraut, kefir, and kimchi. You can have honey or maple syrup in small quantities. It's <laughs> like, this is killing me. Fresh non-seed herbs is fine, like basil, mint, or oregano. Green tea is fine. Bone broth is fine. Vinegar is fine. And then grass-fed gelatin and arrowroot starch. <laughs> okay. I have so many issues with this. The reason that I have issues with this is because there's an assumption being made with this diet that the foods that we're eliminating are ones that are shown to be inflammatory. And the the ones that we can continue to eat are shown to be anti-inflammatory. But when we look into the science of this, it's not making sense. And I just, I have so many, so many red flags, so many things. (laughs) Now, before I go into the flaws of this and, and what's not making sense to me. Like I will explain that. 
I first just want to say this is an elimination diet. It's not like they're saying you need to do this for the rest of your life. And so just by that fact alone, I'm not as maybe annoyed about this as I would be something else. But it is probably a super unnecessary thing for somebody with an autoimmune disease to have to go through when they're already under a significant amount of stress from their condition. They're already hearing a bunch of stuff about what they should and shouldn't be eating from just diet culture in general. Throw on top of that, that apparently they need to cut out all of these foods because they're probably having inflammation from them. It's just like, we don't need to be restricting foods without cause. And so to be fair, there is a reintroduction phase in an effort to make sure there actually is a cause, but I just, I don't know. I don't vibe with it that much. However, it could, could, could potentially be helpful in finding some food triggers. So let's go into the flaws that I'm seeing with this diet. So, I mean, like I said, the foods that are allowed during the elimination phase apparently are anti-inflammatory. I think it's so funny that on the list, you're not supposed to have any sugars, including alternative sugars, but you can still have honey or maple syrup. (laughs) Chemically, honey and maple syrup is literally the same as sugar. Honey and maple syrup, syrup is glucose. And so it doesn't make any sense to say that those are anti-inflammatory, but sugar is inflammatory because chemically they break down to the exact same things in your body. So that's like a quick red flag that I noticed that I didn't even put in my article. And I want you to remember the next time somebody's like, oh, it's sugar-free. I used honey. Be like, there's still sugar in here though, because you used honey. (laughs) Okay. So the foods to be excluded. Now, apparently these are ones that are shown to cause inflammation includes gluten. Not a surprise. This is a huge narrative right now in the wellness industry that gluten causes inflammations. It's driving all of us dietitians crazy, that and dairy, um, which I'll get into dairy in a second. So is gluten an inflammatory? There is zero evidence showing us that gluten is inflammatory. (laughs) If there's no symptoms. Now, Obviously, if you have celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease, then gluten will cause inflammation because you are literally allergic to it. But for somebody who does not have celiac disease or has tested and done an elimination diet with a reintroduction phase and figured out that they're very sensitive to gluten, there is no reason to believe that it's causing inflammation. And despite popular belief, there are studies which are linked in the article showing that gluten is not associated with coronary heart disease. It is not associated with type 2 diabetes, and it is not associated with irritable bowel disease, which is an autoimmune disease. So it doesn't make sense that gluten is just like being removed in a blanket way. That that doesn't make sense because gluten in and of itself is not an inflammatory. So I don't know why we're saying that it is an inflammatory because the reality is that if you tell somebody that this food is generally inflammatory, they're not likely to continue eating that food if they're already hypersensitive about the topic of inflammation. And for anybody with an autoimmune disease, they are. They're constantly in fear of something 
worsening their symptoms and causing more inflammation. So even if they go through the reintroduction phase of adding gluten back in and like technically they don't have symptoms, psychologically they could still be concerned and they keep getting told this narrative that gluten is an inflammatory. So they're just like, well, I might as well just cut it out of my diet because of my condition, right? Even though they don't need to. So that's my issue with, I mean, really this whole diet is this like narrative that's being told about this big list of foods being generally inflammatory is that individuals, (laughs) how do we know that they're going to be okay with reintroducing their foods? They're already scared out of their minds that what they're doing is worsening their condition. So if you're pushing that narrative, they're going to probably play it safe and be like, oh, I should just never have any of these foods ever and not worry about reintroducing them because apparently they're inflammatory. Anyway, I got on a little bit of a soapbox there. Let's talk about dairy. Is dairy an inflammatory food? Shockingly, no. (laughs) Not shocking to me, maybe shocking to you. Dairy is actually shown to be anti-inflammatory in a meta-analysis looking at over 11 really good clinical trials. It was shown to reduce inflammatory markers. So dairy can actually be a really helpful aid for you in reducing inflammation. Now, the one caveat to this is that lactose intolerance is actually really quite common. So for those individuals who have lactose intolerance, it is inflammatory because again, we've got a sensitivity going on or an allergy going on. Um, But if you don't have lactose intolerance or lactose allergy, then dairy could be actually anti-inflammatory for you. And then seed oils in the list of foods that are not allowed. Oils is on there other than coconut oil, olive oil, and avocado oil, which means that all seed oils are down for the count. And this is another popular narrative right now that seed oils are like the devil or something. They're not. (laughs) Um, I also have more sources for that if you would like them. There is quality evidence showing that there's really no difference between heart disease risk among those who replace omega-6s, which is seed oils, with saturated fats. There's no difference. So all of this narrative about how toxic and evil seed oils are, again, is just your classic fear-mongering that's creating alarm for no reason. And then the last thing that I wanted to touch on in particular is lectin. So lectin is a protein that is found in a lot of foods, especially legumes and grains and plants. And so for some reason, there's also a narrative that these are toxic. It's just, it's killing me. I, I It's killing me. So if your nutritionist tells you that lectin is causing inflammation and is exacerbating your autoimmune disease, first of all, run. Second of all, they might be referring to a study that was done on roundworms. There was a study done on roundworms. Google roundworms right now on your phone and look at how disgusting these little things are. That's what the study was done on. And it was linking some inflammation with lectins. But I mean, can we really parallel that to humans? I'm going to say no, (laughs) just because there is inflammation in roundworms doesn't mean there isn't humans. I mean, we are much, much, much bigger. We have a much more sophisticated, just everything about us is much more sophisticated. So I think that we can probably handle the lectins, especially when we consider that 
foods that contain lectins are generally found to be anti-inflammatory as well. There's a meta-analysis looking at 83 studies, 71 of which were clinical trials, which is crazy, showing that fruits and vegetables have a beneficial effect on one or more biomarkers of systemic inflammation. So what that means is that fruits and vegetables, this shouldn't be that surprising, are generally anti-inflammatory and lectin is found in fruits and vegetables. So does it really make sense to say that lectin is inflammatory? No. Okay, let's say the naysayers out there are like, well, Michelle, what about for those with autoimmune disease though? Okay, valid point. It has also been shown that increasing vegetable intake, which naturally increases lectin intake, can actually reduce the risk of developing irritable bowel disease and autoimmune disorder by up to 44%. So your argument about autoimmune diseases being different when it comes to lectin doesn't really have a leg to stand on. So based on all that evidence, you could easily argue that lectins are anti-inflammatory because of the foods that they're found in. So now that we've kind of debunked all of the foods that the AIP claims to be generally inflammatory, and we've learned that generally they're actually not inflammatory, let's talk about how we actually measure inflammation. Wouldn't it be nice if we had this evidence-based tool that showed us how much inflammation a food causes? Wouldn't that be nice? Otherwise, how are we measuring it? Believe it or not, we do have a tool (laughs) that does that. It is called the Empirical Dietary Inflammatory Index. It used to be called the Dietary Inflammatory Index. Now we've tacked on empirical to the front. As far as I know, this tool was not used when creating the AIP lists of foods to exclude, foods to include, all of that. I'm going to call it the EDII because that's just easier. Maybe I'll call it the EDI. If I say EDI, will you know what I'm talking about? The EDI is a tool developed by researchers who used over 1900 studies to see how um, certain foods or certain components of foods affected systemic inflammation. Using this information, they listed about 45 nutrients and whole foods, and they provided a score for each of those, indicating their likelihood of being inflammatory, anti-inflammatory, or just like kind of neutral. So um, in the article that I have associated with this episode, I'm going to list out all of this. Um, but in general, what we see with the eddy is that foods that are really high in added sugars, fried foods, ultra processed foods, red meat, alcohol, saturated fats, and sometimes the seed oils can be inflammatory. Now, I know I said earlier that seed oils are not really a cause for concern. Um, they're not any more cause of concern than saturated fats are. And you're supposed to have omega-6 in your diet. It's an essential fatty acid. So I don't like this narrative that seed oils are toxic and you should never have them because they're actually essential, um, the omega-6s that are in seed oils. So you still need them in your diet. It's just something that, I mean, like everything else, you have to have in moderation. And it's better to include more of the unsaturated fat and the omega-3s, more of those compared to the omega-6s. Now, here's the hilarious thing about this is that using the eddy, this evidence-based tool, we also are able to identify foods that are generally anti-inflammatory. And they do not correlate with the foods that AIP claims to be generally inflammatory. 
It's kind of saying the opposite, actually. So according to the EDII, the foods that are anti-inflammatory or are basically all the antioxidants, flavones, isoflavones, beta-carotene, flavanols, omega-3 fatty acids, and vitamin C. Fiber is anti-inflammatory, turmeric, ginger, green and black tea, nuts and seeds, whole grains, and foods containing magnesium. Now, here's where things get interesting. If you remember, if you were paying attention to the foods that I talked about that are supposed to be excluded when you're doing the elimination phase of the AIP, pretty much everything on the list of things to be excluded is actually an anti-inflammatory food. So let me let me pitch you some examples here. <laughs> so the AIP says to eliminate nightshade vegetables, right? According to the EDII, Eddie says that flavones, which is an antioxidant, is an anti-inflammatory. Guess where flavones are found? In nightshade vegetables. AIP says to eliminate soy, but EDII says that isoflavones are an anti-inflammatory, and guess where those are found? In soy. (laughs) AIP says to eliminate foods like bell peppers, but beta-carotene is an anti-inflammatory and can be found in bell peppers. AIP says to only supposed to have fruits in small quantities, but (laughs) fruits have flavanols and vitamin C, which are, you guessed it, (laughs) anti-inflammatory. The last one I'll point out is that AIP says to eliminate foods like beans and nuts and seeds and whole grains because they want you to cut out all grains and chocolate, but magnesium is found in all of those foods, which is an anti-inflammatory. So the AIP does not make a lot of sense from an inflammation standpoint, but it does make sense from just an elimination diet standpoint. It makes sense to eliminate some foods to try and figure out if they are a trigger for you. Really, I mean, any of these foods that I listed off that are generally shown to be anti-inflammatory, any of those foods are fair game when it comes to what our own individual bodies are going to decide whether they tolerate them or not. So eliminating foods, doing an elimination diet does make sense if you find that you're having symptoms that seem to be pointing to a sensitivity. But in general, I don't agree that the foods that the AIP claims to be inflammatory are inflammatory because there's just not the research there to support it. So kind of to summarize this, the AIP, yeah, it could be helpful to someone with an autoimmune condition just to identify those triggers that could be making symptoms worse, right? But it's it's creating this narrative around the foods on the diet list that they are generally inflammatory. And I just think that anybody with an autoimmune condition is going to see that And they're going to think, well, it doesn't really matter if I do the whole elimination phase. If this food generally causes inflammation, then I'm just going to trust that. And I have an autoimmune condition. And so I really need to be careful of inflammation. Therefore, I'm just going to always avoid these foods. And that leads to a really highly restrictive lifestyle, which can be, first of all, just miserable. But second of all, it can create some nutrient deficiencies and even malnourishment. And so it doesn't help to promote something like this. If um, we're putting blanket statements on foods and saying these are shown to cause inflammation when they're not actually. So if you have an autoimmune disease, I am all for you doing an elimination diet. If you think that there or if you suspect that there are foods that are making things worse for you, you have every right to do that. And it is your body, you know, your body best. And I would really listen to that and really pay attention when you're reintroducing to 
how you feel and see if there's any, it could be the most random food. And if you're like, no, I have a symptom, then I'd be like, okay, let's listen to your body. Then don't eat it. It doesn't matter what my research says or what the studies say about how often that food is something that people are sensitive to. If you are sensitive to it and you know, deep down, I don't feel good after I eat this food, then you should listen to that. And with that being said, be careful that you're not kind of expecting to not feel good after eating a food. If you have in your head that you are sensitive to gluten and you've just believed that for decades or the last few years, and you're just sure that that's true of you, and then you go to try and test it and reintroduce it, chances are, if you have a belief that you are sensitive to that, you are going to have symptoms. That's called the nocebo effect. It's like the opposite of a placebo. A placebo effect is that we do an intervention and we expect it to work. So it does work, even if it was like not a helpful intervention. The nocebo effect is when we expect something to not work. And so if you're expecting that you're going to be sensitive to gluten and you just are totally convinced that gluten is not going to work for you, then when you go to test it, you're probably going to have symptoms. So be sure your mindset is in the right place when you do a reintroduction of different foods and that you're not just like completely sold on which foods you're going to be sensitive to before you've even given them a fair chance. So I I hope this was helpful for you. If you have an autoimmune disease, if you don't have an autoimmune disease, but you suspect you have food sensitivities or allergies or intolerances, always, always, always run everything past a registered dietitian. It's one thing to listen to one on a podcast like this. It's another to actually lay out your life story in front of one and say, this is who I am. What should I do? What are your thoughts and opinions, right? That's totally different. You do need to have individualized medical advice. And if you are finding yourself really stressed out about food and you're living in this all or nothing mentality all the time about it, and you just can't seem to like figure out what your body needs without obsessing over it and believing everything every wellness influencer tells you, and you just want to be at peace in your body and with food while taking care of your health, whether you have an autoimmune disease or not, then hit me up. I would love to see if I can help you. You can go to the show notes to learn more about how to work with me. Um, Anybody who struggles with binge eating or that all or nothing mentality or is constantly on a diet for whatever reason, you are my people and I would love to help you. That is literally my favorite thing in the world is to help women heal their relationships with food and with their bodies so that they can get their brain space back (laughs) and focus on what really matters in their life and live their life. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know by leaving me a rating or review. If you did, it is so helpful to me to get your feedback and it also helps the powers that be see that this is a podcast that people are enjoying. And so they'll show it to more people and be sure you hit the follow button so that you never miss an episode. All right. Thanks you guys. We'll talk soon.